0: following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com.
1: Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 5:21 through 33. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives.
0: Uh, If you've been with us, Over the course of the last year, you'll know that we have been uh, slowly going through the book of Ephesians, going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. That's typically how we do things at Sacred City Church, uh, preaching exegetically. And we have been spending time in the marriage section uh, of Ephesians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul, speaking to the church in Ephesus, is addressing husbands and wives, specifically how the gospel carries implications in that relationship. And for the last couple weeks, we've been taking the scenic route through these ten or eleven verses. Um, We've been looking at the posture of marriage. We've seen how that the the posture of marriage is that of honoring, where husbands honor their wives by loving them in a self-sacrificing kind of way. That is given; uh, they, they give themselves over to her so she might live, that she might flourish. And wives honor that sacrificial love by submitting to their husbands as if in submission to Christ. And so there's this, this posture of, of humility and honor in the covenant of marriage. And last week we talked about the purpose of marriage, that God brings us into this covenant uh, with another person so that he would make us holy. And on the other side of holiness is true happiness and joy. And we're going to cap off this time in Ephesians chapter 5 on, on the husbands and wives, the topic of, of marriage, by talking about the, par- the power of marriage. We're, we're asking the question what fuels this mutually honoring and holiness-promoting union? What, what drives it? What, what fuels it? What makes it work? What is the power behind it? Now, the reason we have to ask this question is because this kind of God-honoring marriage, that, that of honoring and, and, of, and of pursuit of holiness doesn't happen by accident, It's not a default thing that you you get married and all of a sudden you're sent on this trajectory. It's not a fluke. It it takes takes a real kind of work. It takes some intentionality behind this because marriage, when you think about it, marriage is essentially taking two sinners and having them live in close proximity for the rest of their life. Right? You're sharing a house, you're sharing the bed. You're sharing your bodies, your money, your calendar, what you do with your time, your your parenting responsibilities and all the other household responsibilities that are necessary. There there are so many things that in marriage now get overlapped and intertwined where yours is mine and mine is yours. And when you bring two people who have this natural self-preoccupation with themselves, it will naturally cause tension, right? Right? Now, romance might make it float for a little while. But it won't last forever. The honeymoon phase will come to an end. The once cute quirks that you found so endearing and so charming suddenly start to annoy you. You look at the dirty dishes, stacking up, not in the sink, but on the counter next to the sink, and you say, come on, get with, like, how hard is it to move it from there to to the dishwasher, you see the pile of clothes stacking up on the floor. You can't really determine if they're clean or you're dirty. And you say, Come on, I just want a clear pathway to my bed. You get into things of finances, the differences and opinions where one of you has a tendency to oversave while the other one likes to overspend. And there's this conflict of what are we going to do with our money? And and in my opinion, in my mind, I'm right and you're wrong. You stack up the offenses, the big and the little sins that sort of accumulate over time. Someone's uh, perceived insensitivity or sometimes actual insensitivity. You've got all kinds of unmet expectations. You go into marriage thinking, I thought it was going to be one way, and now it's going to be a different way. You're wondering, hey, what happened to you? You changed along the way somewhere. You've got a a, a myriad of differences of opinions, uh, hurt feelings, you've got the distractions of of technology usage that's interfering, this face-to-face relationship that that you're meant to have, and so there's all of these things that are, are leading into tension and conflict and potential problems within the relationship of marriage. These big and little sins sort of ding away, knock away, kind of are chipping away at the integrity Of this relationship when you put two selfish people together which listen I don't have to know you very long to know that you're selfish we all have this this internal selfish bent that's just operating in our sort of natural tendencies and when you put two selfish people together conflict is inevitable because sin happens at the end of the day Like, even in our redemption in Christ, we are still saints who have a sin problem. But the thing is, how you respond to that sin, how you deal with this give and take in in the context of marriage will determine if your marriage will make it for the long haul. Now, unfortunately, there are two natural and very unhelpful responses that, that we've sort of just gravitate towards in our natural bent of things that maybe we've, we've seen it um, uh, imaged for us in, in our own upbringings, seen our parents and how their marriages worked, and, and we sort of adopt those, and kind of those become the expectations that we have, but, but whatever it is, when, when this, the sin issues arise, when we start to clash and enter into conflict, we tend to go into these two unhelpful responses. First one, Right, you sense conflict coming on. What do you do? You lace up them boxing gloves. It's time to fight. I have got to fight for myself. Right? Some of us have seen this as, our, as a kid. Right? The, the, content, or the, the, the climate of our home, our household growing up, just saw mom and dad going back and forth at each other. In fact, that, that's one of the ways we think that's what it looks like to love one another is to have this constant fight uh, uh, you know, underway. And when this is going on, when you're in this fight uh, disposition, right? You're 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 wanting to, to to lash out and go. You're talking over each other. It's like the loudest voice is gonna win, but it never really does. No one's really listening, no matter how loudly or how well thought, it, thought out and, and crafted your argument is. No one's really listening, and we just have this back and forth that's going. Now, it might be obvious like that, like that sort of conflict, that fight going, or it might be more of a, a subtle uh, chess game. You're still fighting in some ways, but it's passive-aggressive. Right, you're you're figuring out how can I push this bu- this person's buttons without actually really getting in my emotions about it. Now, either way, whether it's this passive-aggressive thing or if this like really obvious fight uh, tension thing going on, it can get gnarly really quickly. Because in this, when we're in this posture of I've got to fight, what can easily happen is what was once vulnerability that was offered uh, in a trusting relationship, that vulnerability gets weaponized. I'm going to take things that I know about you and use it against you, and it's going to cut deep. And when that happens, we begin to feel unsafe. You wonder, can I actually trust this person? Can I share anything with them ever again, or is that just going to get pushed right back in my face? And because of this, you you feel unsafe. Because there's a a breach of trust, you start to drift apart as frustration and anger swells in your marriage. See, that's that's the fight reaction. The other way is you experience conflict, and instead of going to fight, what you do is you ignore it. You pretend like it doesn't exist or bother you. People ask you, hey, how's your marriage going? And you say, oh, everything's just fine. We're doing great here. You, let, you don't let the, the, the difficulty show. You keep a face. Things might look fine on the outside, but internally what's going on is you are keeping score. You're keeping a record of offenses every way, your spouse or, or significant other or, or whoever. I mean, this applies beyond marriage to any kind of relationship, but you're keeping a record of offenses, and you're just stuffing it down, pushing it down and down and down. And what happens is you keep doing this over time. It pressurizes your soul with bitterness and resentment, and you'll either become a ticking time bomb, time bomb well, where you'll explode and go right back into the first thing of that fight method, right? have a huge blow up, or you're gonna just pull away from your spouse. Put, put distance in between you and time, sort of a cruise, and further and further and further away. And, and typically, by the time your kids have grown up and gotten out of the house, you, re, you look across the room and you're like... Ooh. What are we even doing here? We are so far apart. Now the danger of these two unhelpful and common responses, it's pretty obvious. Slowly, if, if left to their own devices, if left uninterrupted, they will destroy a marriage. Sometimes gradually, sometimes very quickly. Both of these things are streams that feed into The ocean of divorce. Now, to our culture, divorce is not taboo anymore. Like it was back in the 70s, 60s, 50s, like the moral era. Um, It's it's not that big of a deal. But if we think biblically about it, which we ought to, and, and that's actually one of my biggest missions as your pastor is to help you think biblically about all of life, when it comes to divorce, we ought to see that divorce is actually a big deal it's a serious thing. Now I say that knowing that there are people in this room that have gone through divorces themselves and I'm not saying this to condemn, but I'm trying to open up God's word to see what He has to say about this and in Ephesians chapter five, what the vision that Paul puts forward as marriage, which is actually Paul, quoting Jesus, who's quoting Moses, who's quoting God, all the way back in the very beginning when God invented marriage, God says that in marriage, two become one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus says that back in, in Matthew chapter 19. And because marriage is essentially two becoming one flesh, divorce Is not like um, taking off one set of clothes, taking off one outfit to put on a new outfit. Divorce is more like amputation. That is to become one flesh. Your your life is so intertwined intertwined together, brought together by a union, uh, a covenant that is made between you and your spouse before the Lord. And to break that means that part of you is displaced, that there is now a void in you. Now, in some cases, divorce may be necessary for survival. Like there are times when amputation is necessary for survival. If you've got gangrene in your fingertips, you might have to chop them bad boys off, right? Or the guy at 127 hours gets his arm pinned in a boulder and he has to, ampute. if he wants to live, he has to make that hard decision. Now, this is a hard call to make. It's not something you, 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 you know, flippantly jump into and say, this, is, this must be the best way forward. It, it's like, we have to think about it like the eject button on a fighter, fighter jet, right? You, you hit normal turbulence, you're not thinking, oh, is it time to press the button, but there are times when the, the the aircraft is going down. And if if, if you're going for a, a giant mountain, ejecting might be the thing that you need to do to walk away from this. And because divorce is such a hard call to make, it ought to be discerned with the help of godly leaders. Because while there are a lot of wrong reasons for getting divorced, there are also biblical reasons for getting divorced. In some cases, like adultery, uh, abandonment, abuse, when these things are either irreconcilable or they are life-endangering, divorce might be the best option forward. It's hard to talk about d- divorce d- Generically, I know I'm speaking to a lot of different people coming from a lot of different places, and and divorce is a tricky and nuanced subject that's actually best dealt with in a one-on-one scenario. Um, But because it is so tricky and nuanced, this is actually one of the topics where the religious leaders come to Jesus and try to pin him in a corner. And I want to take you to Matthew 19 today. If you ha- it's going to be up on the screen here, but also in the pew Bibles in front of you. I would like for you to grab one of those. Uh, I believe it's on page 702, Matthew chapter 19. I'm, I'm going to read here for you, starting at verse 3, what's going on, where Jesus starts to address uh, the topic of marriage. Matthew 19, verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to Jesus, and they tested him by asking, Is it lawful to to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Right? Sound familiar? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now there's a lot of stuff that's going on here. There, there, in, in that context, divorce was basically used as a social bargaining chip. Uh, uh, the, the wife couldn't go and just ask for a divorce even if she was in the context of a marriage that was unhealthy, um, being abused, being uh, neglected, um, and, and, and men would get married and sort of pass women off. As, there, there's, that's one thing that's going on here. But, but one of the things where the Pharisees are trying to trip Jesus up, up is when they say that Moses has commanded one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, this is a very interesting, very important phrase here. And Jesus sort of corrects them here. He's, he says that, listen, Moses didn't command divorce. He gave it as a concession. And Jesus identifies the underlying cause of divorce right here in verse eight of of chapter 19. He says to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not this way. See, Jesus says the underlying cause of divorce, the the thing that will get in your marriage and sabotage it is hardness of heart, a a resistance to God's grace and discipline, uh, a a disposition of uncharitableness towards other people. This is what a hardness of heart looks like, and and this can happen. Divorce will, will... can happen when both parties are hard-hearted or if one person is hard-hearted enough for the both of you. And Jesus says it's because of the hard heart that God gives an allowance, a concession for divorce, but this is not his plan. And we've talked about this before, that the plan of marriage, the purpose of marriage is to show God's glory, to tell the gospel story. And one of the ways that that we fail to tell the story of the gospel in our marriages is if we take an ax to them. Now, we... we, we we went at the deep end here of talking about marriage, right into talking to divorce. But the reason is because this, this heart issue is what's driving, what's what's moving us towards this end, we have having identified the issue, we have to ask this question now. If divorce or, or marital failure is caused by hardness of heart, how do we get soft hearts? And it's interesting because before this week, I've never really seen this here in Matthew's gospel, but the answer is actually found in Matthew 18, which precedes this discussion, like directly precedes uh, this discussion of, of divorce. In fact, if you're looking at, at the Bible right now, on you move up a little bit and you're going to see several things Jesus is talking about. First, in, 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 um, in verse 15 of Matthew 18, he talks about there's this uh, reconciliation protocol that if your brother sins against you, what do you do? Right, how do you win your brother back over or sister or whoever it might be? He talks about the frequency of how we need to offer forgiveness. He says, is it just seven times? And the disciples asked that. He says, no, 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 it's 70 times seven. It's this thing that we have to continually come back to and relinquish forgiveness. And then he sort of caps off Matthew 18 with the parable of the unforgiving servant. And you might be familiar with this. It's not one of Jesus' more popular um, parables, that's for sure. But let me just recap this for you. And you can, you can go home and you can study this for yourself and see what I'm, I'm talking about. But in this parable that Jesus tells, there is this servant um, who has accumulated a massive debt against his master. Huge debt. We're talking millions of, of whatever dollars or currency that they're using at this point. He, he's amassed a large sum of debt against his master, and he knows that he's indebted to his master, and he goes and he pleads with his master because if he doesn't pay this debt, he's gonna be thrown into prison. He's gonna have to work off this debt. He's gonna be separated from his family. It's gonna be a whole big mess, and he goes to the master and says, will you please just give me some more time? I, I will pay you back. I'll get it together. I'll, I'll, I'll get you what, you what I owe you, And this master is moved with pity. It says he has compassion. He has pity for this servant. And he forgives this huge debt just like that. I mean, can you imagine? Like having this kind of debt forgiveness, all your student loans, your mortgage, uh, whatever credit card debt, whatever kind of debt you've you've acquired over the years, your your lender's looking at you and say, you know what, I've been moved with compassion and we're just gonna let it go. Clean slate, boom, it's done. Don't worry about paying it back, you're fine. So the, the servant experiences this kind of radical and huge forgiveness. And moments later, whether it's a day or a couple weeks or whatever it is, there's a scenario that follows up where he is with one of his peers, a fellow servant, and he has him in a chokehold, threatening to throw him in prison, taking him to court over what is comparatively nickels. Say, "Give me what's mine." We see a complete lack of forgiveness. He's unable to pay forward the forgiveness, the radical forgiveness that he's experienced from his, his, his master, to his fellow servant. You see the stinginess. This, it, it, what is it? It's a hardness of heart. He's withheld that forgiveness which he has personally received first. And so the king or the master, he hears about this. And he is, he is not happy. In fact, he takes that unforgiving servant and says, listen, um, that deal where I wiped it away, that's off. You still owe me. And in fact, I'm gonna throw you in jail. And so the whole thing flips over, where this guy had experienced this radical forgiveness to so now it's being sucked away. No, Jesus gives this warning at the end of it. And this is probably why this is not as popular of a parable uh, as some of the others, is because at the end of chapter 19, Jesus says, or excuse me, chapter 18, he says, after telling the story, he says, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. In other words, he said, if, if you don't pay forward the forgiveness which you have received from your heavenly Father, your debt now comes right back into your lap. Now, we would look at this unforgiving servant and say, how stingy, how foolish of this dude, yet we do this so often in our own relationships, whether within the context of marriage or with our friendships, our missional community family, people that we work with, we hold on to these small debts that comparatively shrink in comparison to the debt that God has forgiven us from. And we especially do this in our marriages. We, we either demand justice when we've been wronged, right, pay up. You, you did this to me? No, no. you make it right. Or another way that this, like religiosity takes this and, and spins it is that we simmer in our superiority. Yeah, I got it. I, you owe me. I don't owe you. You owe me. Right? And we kind of turn our nose up. Yes, it might hurt when we are sinned against. It's going to happen in the context of marriage, and it might cut deep, and it might carry a long-lasting effect. That's part of what it means to live under the curse, that there, there are sins that will hurt us. And I'm not saying that we minimize them or downplay them or rush into reconciliation without doing some of this hard heart work I'm not advocating for you to be a doormat or a martyr within your marriage where you just sort of lay down and take it. But if we are stingy with our forgiveness, we are following in the steps of the unforgiving servant. We're acting in that moment as if we're oblivious to the the radical forgiveness and, and total forgiveness that the Heavenly Father gives towards us. Isaiah 1 says that though our sin was like scarlet, he has washed it right as snow. That's that's part of the language of Ephesians 5 and verse 26 where Jesus talks about washing his bride with the water of the word. The crimson stain is washed clean. And in the gospel, we have this complete and thorough forgiveness. It says as far as the east is from the west, so our sins have been removed from us. In the gospel, this is what we sit underneath, the forgiveness of God for our own sin. See, God forgives the adulterer, the porn user, divorcees. See, it's a misconception that divorce is the unforgivable sin. God forgives divorcees. He forgives the selfish, the immoral, the impure, God has forgiveness for you, whoever you are, whatever your flavor of sin, if you come to Christ, he will give you forgiveness. In fact, the only kind of people that Jesus forgives are those who are undeserving. He doesn't say, clean yourself up, put yourself together, and then, and then we'll see. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll dish out a little bit of forgiveness here and there. Right? Like, like breadcrumbs, like follow, you know, follow the trail. Jesus shows his his forgiveness to us when we do not deserve it at all. And some of you might be hearing this for the first time today. The idea of forgiveness in your life. You say, I've done stuff too bad. I've made too many mistakes. Jesus has forgiveness for you today if you will receive it. And in Acts 10, 43 says this, that to him, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness it, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. It's by faith, it's by trust in Jesus that you receive this forgiveness. And when you see the forgiveness that Jesus offers his people, what we see is that Jesus' heart bleeds for Sinners. Jesus is tender and loving towards us. He's not shaking his fist at us. He's not looking at his watch saying, when are they gonna get together? He is not angry and resentful toward us when we go in our sinful ways. Jesus has a tender, soft heart towards sinners. He opens his arms, offers an embrace, He lifts us up when we are downcast and we're thinking, there's no way my life can turn around. When we experience Jesus' tender heart towards sinners, it softens us. When we experience the tenderness of Christ, we become tender. Now, There there are two ways that, that this begins to have an effect on us. One, when we see Jesus' tenderness, we're told that his kindness leads us to repentance. So the sinful things that I, I used to do that, that were hopefully are, are more and more in my rear view mirror When I experience the forgiveness of Jesus, those things, I turn away from those. I collapse in the arms of our merciful and gracious Redeemer and King. I I give myself to Him, forsaking my self-centered ways and the ways that compound brokenness in my life, and instead of walking that way, I walk in the light as He is in the light. That's what repentance looks like. It's an about-face About turn, I was walking this direction and now Jesus had wooed me into this new way, the path of righteousness. And the second way that we see Jesus softening our hearts, or actually a byproduct of that softening, is that Jesus makes us like him. See, the more that we experience Jesus' forgiveness, the more we become like him. We become kind, forgiving, gentle, patient. In fact, that's one of the reasons, this is actually the reason, why in Ephesians chapter four, right at the end of, of that chapter, Paul says, and this is, this is sort of like a governing statement that, follow, like, that, that, that informs the rest of the Ephesians. He says, be kind to one another, tender hearted, Interesting, soft-heartedness, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. See, when, when the gospel is at work, we are becoming increasingly like Jesus in his kindness, forgiving, uh, and gentleness, and patience. And we see this especially demonstrated in marriage where we, we create, through the gospel, this intimate ecosystem of grace and forgiveness and love. And in this, we see that a godly marriage is marked not by an absence of sin, but by the presence of forgiveness when sin arises. See, that that is one of the determining factors of is your marriage a godly, Jesus-honoring marriage? Is, is, Is there forgiveness there? This is a major key, as DJ Khaled would say. This is crucial And every time you forgive your spouse, you are telling the gospel story of a faithful groom who forgives his bride over and over and over again. See, this is what our marriages are meant to do. It's made to tell a story. In fact, that's why Paul has this conversation about marriage, about husbands and wives, so intertwined with Christ and the church. You see it all the way through Ephesians chapter five. Forgiveness marks a gospel marriage. Now, some of us might object here. Forgiveness, come on. You don't know my spouse. You don't know what I have to put up with. You don't know how badly they've sinned against me. And that might be true. They may have really hurt you. They may have inflicted wounds on your heart that are really hard to bear. And the idea of forgiving them, of relinquishing that, seems too hard and too costly to let that go and to forgive them. But here's the reality of forgiveness. Forgiveness is always costly the offended party will have to unfairly absorb the cost. It's exactly what Jesus did for us. See, Jesus absorbed the due wrath of God for our sins. There's nothing fair about the gospel. Like like Jesus did something that we did not deserve at all. And he willingly gave himself over. And it cost him everything. It cost every act of obedience through his life here on earth. And it ultimately cost him to pay the ultimate price in his sacrifice upon the cross. And Colossians 2 says that he was nailed to the cross. While he was nailed to the cross, he canceled our record of debt that stood against us. And it's legal demands. It's gone. He took it upon himself. It cost him Forgiveness is costly. And again, there might be an objection. It's like, well, if, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna you know, put that out, I, I, I gotta make sure that this person that I'm forgiving has actually changed before I can forgive them. I, I gotta make sure that they're kind of taking steps in the right direction before I relinquish that sort of unforgiveness that I'm holding on to. And thankfully, that is not how Jesus treats us. Because it was while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for you to turn your life around. He didn't wait for you to get it figured out a little bit. It was while you were an enemy of God. That he lays down his life and pays the cost. There are no prerequisites to Jesus' forgiveness and grace. Which is why... Grace is for undeserving people exclusively. You you cannot earn it. You cannot work your way into God's forgiveness. The only way that you can lay hold of this is through faith and trust in Jesus. See, this is the good news of the gospel that we don't deserve any of this, yet Jesus gives and gives and gives. This once and for all sacrifice that works through all of our life, through all of eternity. And in the gospel, all of our sins are like stones that are cast into the ocean of grace. God washes over them, never to be seen again. And this gospel grace, when we see Jesus' gentle heart toward us, creates soft and tender hearts toward God and towards other people, especially our spouses. See, if you want to have a soft heart, if you want to keep your heart from growing hard, you have to hold fast to the grace of Jesus because he is holding on to you. You have to keep the reality of your forgiven state at the forefront of your mind. See, if you are in Christ, the thing that is most true about you is that you are forgiven in Christ. You stand, uh, there, there is now Therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is what's most true about you. And the more that we hold on to this gospel of grace and forgiveness, the more it softens us. And it compels us to have a forgiving posture toward our spouse, even when they do not deserve it. Because that is the way that Jesus loves us. That's the way he loves his church, this powerful and redemptive love that takes action in forgiveness first peter 4 says this kind of love covers a multitude of sin right jump to uh, 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love passages that are always read at, at, at weddings, right? And you think, oh, that's so sweet, but it, that passage, this, this biblical view of love and the radical love, forgiving love of God that's given towards us doesn't really kick into effect until you realize how desperately you need it. And in that moment, you experience a love of God that is patient and kind that rejoices with truth that bears all and endures all. This is the kind of love that we've been loved with in the gospel. And this Jesus-centered love that we offer one another in marriage honors God. It testifies to the grace of the gospel where it takes broken marriages that that are, are like in shambles and can mend them with time and safety and the gospel. It takes good marriages, marriages where maybe you're good buddies or you're good roommates, it actually takes you into the depths of intimacy because each time that you move towards each other in forgiveness creates a stronger bond, more trust, more charity, more compassion and tenderheartedness, it creates a a thriving marriage. And in this, it is for your good and God's supreme glory in Christ Jesus. Now, while the good news of the gospel is enough to soften our hearts, that's what it does. You hold on to the gospel, you keep it in front of you, it's gonna soften your heart. In the day-to-day grind, we become likely to lose sight of the gospel. Right, when you've been offended seven or eight times already today, you lose sight of the gospel. The gospel. And in this day-to-day grind of living with another sinner, we need real help. Because what God calls us to do in marriage, to love like this, to forgive like this, is beyond our own natural ability. You try to do this in your own strength, in your own power, you try to love like this, you try to forgive like Jesus forgives, in your own strength you're going to burn out. You're either going to burn out or you're going to get really self-righteous. One of those two things. What we need is a supernatural power to do the supernatural act of loving and forgiving like Jesus loves and forgives us. And in the gospel, as we put our faith in Jesus, God puts himself in our hearts. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. This is part of the union that we have with Christ, where I am in Him and He is in me. The Spirit of God is at work in my heart. And this is why Paul prays back in Ephesians uh, chapter 3, verse 16, we say, he prays that you be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit. See, this life that we're called to, living out of our identity in Christ, requires a supernatural strength, a supernatural power that can only be given through the Spirit of God. And again, in in, in chapter 5, verse 18, he says, being filled with the Holy Spirit, there's continual empowerment which we need to live and to love in this kind of a way. We need the Holy Spirit. Period. And if we're living in the Spirit, if we have the power of God at work in our hearts, It's not my love that I give to my spouse. It's not my forgiveness that I give to my spouse. I'm a conduit. I am am conveying the love of Christ, his unwavering, faithful, and strong love. I'm a conduit of it, going through me to them. The forgiveness that I receive from Christ is not my forgiveness that I give. It's the forgiveness of Christ that flows through me to them. This is the work of the Spirit in our life. We're drawing love and power and energy straight from the source. This right here is the power of gospel marriage. None other than the power of God at work in us through the Holy Spirit. When God is at work in both the husband and the wife, you start to see beauty unfold. Where marriage hits stride and flourishing takes place. And as the Spirit dwells in us, He is continually pointing us back to the reality of the gospel of our forgiveness. No matter how many times we stumble and fall, no matter how many times we fail, whether in marriage or in other places in our lives, there is forgiveness for us. We are underneath a waterfall of God's grace. It just continues to wash us over and over, and it does. We become a fountain of living water, dishing that out to others as well. What enables us to love like Jesus loves, to bless, to love, to serve, to forgive. And without the gospel, without the power of the Holy Spirit, marriage will always be less than what God intends for it to be. But when we lean into the gospel, when we realize the presence of the Spirit at work in us and through us, marriage becomes a feeder for God's gospel. It puts the love, forgiveness, the beauty of Jesus on display. This is the power for gospel marriage. It's the gospel and the work of the Spirit. And as we come to the Lord's Supper today, it, 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 this is a way for us to step into the drama, right? This, this grand narrative that God has been telling of how he has purchased for himself a bride. He, he makes her holy and clean and will one day present her in splendor and beauty. See, we are stepping into this drama every time we take the elements. It's a reminder the bread was Christ's body broken for us in our sins. His blood shed to cleanse us so that we would be made white as snow. See, it brings us to the sacrifice, to the forgiveness of Christ at the cross, but it also, as we bring the elements into our body, reminds us of the supernatural power which God provides for us, working in us and through us. So as we leave, we do not leave alone, but with the presence of God at work in us. So as you take the Lord's Supper today, step into the drama. See the forgiveness that's available to you in Christ, whether it be the, for, for the first time or for the bazillionth time. And take and know that Jesus loves you and laid down his life for you. And then he has resurrected you. You've been raised with Christ and the power of God is at work in you now. For your marriage, for your relationships in missional community, on, on mission, God is at work. This is the power of God in us. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And the reason that we love you is because you've loved us first. While we were wayward, while we were off doing our own thing, while we were just sort of swallowed up in in pride and self-interest, we were navel-gazing, you looked at us in our wretchedness and you set your love upon us. You sent your son, your beloved son, to be the sacrifice, the true Passover lamb, the one who takes away the sins of the world. And so God, we are grateful that in the gospel, our sins, that when we have professed faith in Jesus and trust, trusted him and we've, we've professed our allegiance to him, that you have removed our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. Every sin has been placed upon him and was nailed to the cross. And so now we stand as your redeemed children or, or as your redeemed bride, and we are waiting for the day where you deliver us a, a, out of, of this, this momentary brokenness, this futility that we experience on this side of eternity, and bring us into the new heavens and new earth where we will shine as your radiance hits our face, we will reflect your glory. Without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle, we will be beautiful in Christ once and for all. And would that story be reflected within our marriages, God? Would you give us, give us what we need in this church, whether, whether a marriage is on life support, whether it's a good marriage and we're hoping that it needs to, to move into to a season of greatness. God, would you bring a season of marital growth Uh, of flourishing, of strengthening our marriage. I know the enemy, one of the top things on his priority list is to undermine and to cut down any kind of godly marriage that exists. So would you protect us? Would you give us your spirit to live into this calling? And would it bring honor to your glory and your fame and your name? It's in Christ Jesus we pray.